And it was a child. My stepdad used to play this game. We'd be driving down the road, you know, New Hampshire. I'm about six, seven years old and we're heading down the road. And he would at some point conspicuously take his hands off the wheel. And the first time I remember it, we were about 100 100 yards from a corner, this long sweeping corner. And immediately, like I stared forward anxiously wondering what was going to happen. And as that corner approached and there were no hands on the wheel, my own hands were sort of grasping at the sort of plush leather back seat of our 82 Buick, wondering, anxiously staring what would indeed happen. Because with no hands on the wheel, it certainly appeared like nobody was in control. And I remember as we came right to that corner, I cried out in fear. I called my stepdad's name because I was sure we were going to go careening off the corner and off into a ditch. And yet, instead of that happening, I noticed the car slowly pulling to the right, the wheel just miraculously turning before my eyes as we sort of lumbered through that corner and came out the other side. And I breathed this deep sigh of relief. And to me, right, that was nothing short of a miracle. I wasn't sure whether or not to get angry with my stepdad. I wasn't sure whether or not to sort of laugh and and beg that he do it again. Of course, what I couldn't see is that my stepdad, who is six foot four, right, his knees were right up under the bottom of that wheel. And so though his hands were off, his knees were there guiding it the whole time. It seemed out of control, when in fact it was in control. Now, I don't share this story encouraging you to try that, though there are fewer cars out. Okay, these are the the things you shouldn't say and in the midst of a message, this is what happens when I'm sitting in my living room. Um, Point is, all right, point is, I raise it because life often seems out of control, right? So much of the time, we like to think we're in the driver's seat, When in reality, we know we're not in the driver's seat, we're not in control, we may be in the passenger seat, or we actually know we're more like in the back seat. Or sometimes we know what it feels like to be sort of strapped on top of the car, hanging on for dear life, because we're not, in fact, in control. We're not in control of the weather. We're not in control of viruses. We don't have control over whether our parents stay together. We don't have control over when we can go back to work. We don't have control over what food is or is not on the shelves or whether or not we grow to be five feet tall or six feet tall. We don't have control over where we were born, to whom we were born, what country we were born in, what century we were born in. Friends, so many of the most significant things about our lives are outside of our own control. And the more we dwell on that, the more tempted we might be to despair over it. Because the naturalist, of course, will tell you that nobody is in control. Life is, by definition, this just a random confluence of, of events. And there's no rhyme, there's no reason, there's no purpose behind it all. Friends, if we're not in control, is anybody in control? Well, that brings us to our psalm this morning, Psalm 93, Psalm 93. Let me, let me invite you to turn there with me now, Psalm 93. And as you turn to Psalm 93, it's in the, the fourth book of the Psalter. So recall the Psalter is divided into five books. And, and book one is deeply personal. 
book two and three are more national. They deal a lot with the corporate life of Israel. And then as you get into books four and five, they're quite liturgical. And that is they celebrate a lot of the corporate worship of Israel. And as we finish book three, which is Psalm 88 and 89, as we finish book three, book three ends on a very minor key, right? All seems black and dark and despairing as Israel's exile looms on the horizon. And that's where the backdrop that brings us into some of these Psalms. So let's look now at Psalm 93, Psalm 93. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He is put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring Mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. Well, friends, just five short verses, but those verses pack an amazing punch So when it feels like nobody's got the steering wheel, when life seems to be careening out of control, when all looks dark, when all looks bleak and all looks uncertain, what are we to do? Well, the world will tell you that you must be the change you wish to see. You have got to, to look deep within and to dig deep, and you've got to make a difference. Or perhaps the world will say, you know what, if you can't change your circumstances, you got to change your perspective. So instead of complaining that a rose bush is full of thorns, be grateful that a thorn bush is full of roses. It's that kind of thinking you might be encouraged to, the world will turn us to. Point being, for so many, the answer to life's greatest problems lies within us either through the power of positive thinking or through some kind of persuasive action, we are the solution to our deepest problems. But friend, notice the psalm. Where are you in this psalm? Look hard. Yeah, nowhere. You're not in the psalm. There is not a word about you in this psalm. This psalm doesn't call us to look inward. It doesn't call us to unleash our fullest potential. It doesn't call us to recognize how awesome we are, how magnificent we are. No, how truly gifted we are, none of that's in here. It doesn't point us inward. This psalm points us upward. It points us toward God, to look at God, at a God who reigns. You want to know what's going to most help you get through your day Do you want to know the antidote to despair? The message of Psalm 93 is simple. Rest in the God who reigns. Rest in the God who reigns. You are not in control, but you can trust the one who is in control. That's the basic message of Psalm 93. And it's this message that actually continues throughout a whole series of Psalms. 
So Psalm 93 up to Psalm 100, they all proclaim God in various ways as king. So here, right, verse 1, the Lord reigns. Or Psalm 96, verse 10, the Lord reigns. Psalm 97, 1, the Lord reigns. Psalm 99, 1, the Lord reigns. There's to be no confusion. There's to be no doubt. We're not left pondering and wondering, is God really in control? Yes, he is in control. He reigns. He alone is king. A king who is robed, notice, not with a suit that's going to go out of style, not with some kind of fancy colors that will fade, not with threads that will, that will unravel itself. But this is a king who is robed in majesty. And this majesty speaks to God's, his unparalleled, his, his splendor, his grandeur, right? his dignity and his authority. Robed in majesty and girded or belted, the text says, with strength. So notice, not a mere show of strength. You know, God's not all just bluster and bravado. No, he possesses unrivaled power. It was this month, uh, back in 1815, that Mount Tambora didn't just erupt, it exploded. It exploded with a blast that could be heard 1,200 miles away. So if this eruption was in Washington, D.C., here in Fayetteville, we could have heard the blast. And the ash bloom rose over 130,000 feet, so four times higher than what your average commercial plane flies at. And that ash quickly traveled across the globe, so much ash that it began to block the sun. And that year was called, it was called the year without a summer. It snowed in New York in June, killing crops all across New York and all across New England. There was frost. There was freezing cold in August in Virginia. It's part of what led Thomas Jefferson uh, deeper into, into debt. It led Joseph Smith up in Vermont to leave Vermont. It created massive floods in India. In Europe, dams froze in the heart of summer, broke killing scores of people. Given all the famines that ensued over the course of that next year, it became the world's largest sort of subsistence crisis, anything we'd seen in hundreds of years. And it said the energy from that simple explosion was enough to power our current electrical grid. So the energy of just that one explosion could power our entire electrical grid for over a year. Friends, that's the kind of strength, that kind of power. Friends, that's what happened like when God sneezes, when he inadvertently hiccups. This is the God who rules all creation and a tiny mountain explodes with that kind of force. God is supremely powerful. He possesses unrivaled strength. And verse 1 is helping us see that it's this God, this God reigns. He is robed in majesty. So there's none like him, none like this majestic God. And he is girded with strength. There's no one as great, as strong as him. And the rest of the psalm really is going to highlight God's reign over sort of three distinct areas. And part of what we see is God, he reigns over creation. That's the first area we see. He reigns, that reign extends over creation. 
So you see there at the end of verse one, how he established the world. The world didn't just appear in all of its beauty and all of its grandeur and all of its diversity and all of its perfection. That wasn't just a cosmic accident. So if you were to come across the French palace of Versailles and you're to come across it, just stumble across it in the middle of a forest, right? Ornately arrayed, gilded in gold. You could assume perhaps that a tornado had swung through the forest and, and piled rock upon rock. And then you could assume that over years, erosion went at those rocks must, much like a chisel over time. And then you might assume that maybe some lightning struck occasionally and, and hit some gold there in that rock and melted it and voila, right? You've got Versailles. All of its beauty and grandeur. Or you could conclude that it wasn't the product of some random, some fortunate act of nature, but it was rather the deliberate work of a master architect. It was built, you might better conclude, by someone with immense intelligence and purpose. Friends, our world, the world we inhabit, is so much more beautiful, so much more complex, so much more diverse and awe-inspiring than a single building. And that's because the master and builder of all that we see is God himself. And the point being, it's this God of strength and majesty. It's this God who rules over creation such that, notice, creation shall never be moved. Now, the psalmist is not writing a physics textbook. So he, it's not saying the earth doesn't rotate on its axis. It's not saying the earth doesn't orbit around the sun. It is to say it's the Lord who sustains it. It's the Lord who holds it all in perfect balance so that this world is not shaken or moved or sent out of its orbit. You know, my wife laughs at me uh, because I can never do two things at once. You know, we're working out in the yard. I was trying to plant a tree and have a conversation. I couldn't do it. I can't do the dishes and have a conversation. And yet there's God. There is God. And he can uphold not just this world, but he keeps everything and its perfect place, spinning in perfect rotation. So the earth around its axis and our perfect orbit around the sun. Why doesn't the earth drift out of orbit? Why, not like a satellite, does it fall out of orbit and burn up? Well, it's because the Lord sustains it and he upholds it which is to say nothing about the orbit of our solar system around the Milky Way. Some of you may not know that. Our whole solar system rotates around the Milky Way, about 220 million years it takes for a single rotation. God holds all of that perfectly in place, not to mention the billions of other galaxies we cannot see. Because this God reigns. He established the cosmos. He rules over creation. This physical world is established because God's throne was first established. It is verse two from of old, or as the CSB says, from the beginning, only God is everlasting. This world exists only because God first existed and because God willed it to exist. Now, as we get to verses three and four, they speak of, of the floods lifting up and, and lifting lifting up their voice, lifting it up, they begin to roar. And the way even the psalmist writes there in, in verses three and four, he writes as if 
as if the waves are building, as if they're gathering steam and, and they're cresting and mounting before they come crashing down. And we're meant to feel the energy of those waves in verses three and four. And yet, verse four, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. You know, the waters are often pictured as, as chaotic and as unruly in the scriptures. And so perhaps these verses highlight how God yet continues to rule over even sort of the chaotic waters. They, they can't break him. In which cases, verse three and four is really just highlighting what we've already seen in verses one and two. But notice uh, your Bible, I trust, has a bit of a break there, a bit of a gap between verse two and verse three. And that's helping us see that there is actually a transition between verses one and two and verses three and four. And one of the things we learn about the, the gods of Israel's neighbors, right? The Babylonians, for example, their god Marduk established his reign by defeating a sea god, the god of the Baals. He, or the Baal rather, the god of the Canaanites. Yeah, he, he boasted of becoming king because he also defeated this, this great sea god. Israel's neighbors boasted of a God who, who conquered the seas. And I think that's one of the reasons why in the Old Testament, the ocean itself and, and waves are often symbols of nations in opposition to God. So Psalm 46, the nations rage like waters that roar and foam. Or Isaiah 17, 12 reads, Ah, the thunder of many peoples. They thunder like the thundering of the sea, the roar of the nations. They roar like the roaring of mighty waters. The nations roar like the roaring of mighty waters, but he will rebuke them. It's one of the reasons why we're told in the new heavens and the new earth, Revelation, there will be no sea. Now, I don't think that means there's no water Rather, what's being communicated is that in the new heavens and the new earth, there are no longer any nations in opposition to God. There's no longer any opposition to God. I think verses three and four are helping us see, secondly, the Lord just doesn't reign over creation. He reigns over kingdoms. Verse three and four is actually, I think, about God's reign over kingdoms. Because God reigns in the heavens, because his throne is everlasting, because he is the ruler and sustainer of all, there is no kingdom of this world that finally poses a threat to him. Now, that's not to say they won't rage. The Egyptians, right, they raged against God's people, and yet the Egyptians came to understand what happened, right, when, when God brought the waters against them. The Israelites themselves would rage against God's anointed, and yet their temple would be crushed, right? Never to return again. The Romans would bring their full weight and fury against God's people, and yet despite being crucified or despite being tossed to the lions, God's kingdom marches forward. Listen, if you hear some laughter, my apologies. One of my dogs was sound asleep and just had a bad dream. And this is what happens when you try to deliver messages from your living room. Uh, things fall off behind you. Dogs start snoring in the middle of sermons. Um, but the point being, despite all of this, right, despite how the nations may rage against God's people, right, the kingdom of God, his reign, it continues. 
Friends, that's the way it's always been. Right? You could think of Bloody Mary and her persecutions in England in the 16th century. You can think of 20th century communism. You could think of modern day China, Xi Jinping and, and the persecution he has brought against the church. Friend, even our own nation. Think even of our own nation during this COVID season where we have states like California and New York, even Kentucky that are singling out, even criminalizing churches for gathering when they're not criminalizing other gatherings. Nations will rage. But they're like the winter swells. I remember in Santa Cruz as a teenager, right? these winter swells would come they would gather, they would crest, and they would hurl themselves with all of their energy and fury against the cliffs, only to break helplessly against those cliffs, right? Foaming and swirling in impotent anger. They were left finally to recede back into the sea in defeat. Friends, that's what happens when the nations rage. They hit the rock. They hit God. They are crushed. God does not move. He cannot be shaken. Friends, all human reign are like those waves that crash against the rock. It ends in ruin and defeat. There is no kingdom that can prevail against God's church. Right? Where are the Babylonians? Where are the Assyrians? Right? Where are the Caesars? Where's the Tang dynasty? Where's the Habsburg dynasty? Friends, all in rubble and ruins, right? Like a match that quickly flares up and then is extinguished just moments later. And yet the church continues to burn brightly. Friends, not even the gates of hell, Jesus said, can prevail against his church. All earthly reign, all opposition to God, Revelation 18 itself will be tossed into the sea, which means we need not worry. When all appears lost, when all might appear hopeless, God reigns. He reigns over creation. He reigns over every kingdom. God is saying, I was here before you were born and I'll be here long after you're gone. You can trust me. And that's how the psalm closes, verse five. Your decrees are trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. So we've seen God's reign over creation, over kingdoms. I think thirdly, we see it actually here over the church. We see it here in verse five over the church because the psalmist, notice he speaks of God's house, which of course would have meant for the psalmist likely the temple. But of course, where is the temple where God dwells with his people today? Well, it's not in Jerusalem. Maybe a better biblical question, who is the temple? You know, Paul writing to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 3.16, he says to them, do you not know that you, Corinthian church, are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy. And you, Corinthian local church, you are that temple. Right? The local church is God's temple where he dwells and where he chooses to commune with his people. 
So friends, how does God reign? Even in verse five, how does he reign in his church? How does he dwell with his people? Well, it's through his word, with decrees, verse five, that are trustworthy. Or as the CSB says, testimonies that are completely reliable. Completely reliable. Friends, God rules his people through his church. Well, rather through the church, but, but most specifically in the church, he rules them through the word. He rules them through the word. So member of UBC, if you profess to have this God here as your ruler, that means his word must rule your life. If you have God as your ruler, if that's what you profess, it means his word must rule your life. Does it? You know, every day there's a war that takes place within our own souls. So will we rule ourselves or will God's word rule our lives? That's something we have to decide every single day we wake and that we tackle our days. Will we trust his word or will we trust our own words? Will we listen to God's words and to his voice and submit to his rule or listen to our own words, our own voice and submit to our own rule? Friends, that's the question, which means every day, every day that we go about our business without ever opening God's word, what we're saying to God is that I can rule myself, thank you. I don't need you. When we regularly meet with other Christians and we gather with them to to maybe fellowship together, and yet that fellowship, we never open God's word. We never quote from God's word. We never turn people to God's word. What we're saying is that we can get along in this Christian life very fine without you, God. We don't need you. When we prize churches that don't prize this word, when we prize churches that never give any time to the study of it, and they don't cherish it, and they don't seek to be conformed to this word, we are saying we can rule ourselves. We don't need you, God. Which is crazy, because notice, it doesn't just say God's words are trustworthy. It says they're very trustworthy. Or again, CSB, completely reliable. That's God's word. Friend, what in your life is completely reliable? Nothing but this word. Nothing is. Think of all the things in your life that aren't reliable. So medical tests are not reliable. It's estimated upwards a third of these COVID-19 tests are issuing false negatives. Namely, they're telling people they don't have the disease, when the virus rather, when when they probably do. Our bodies, not reliable. Our memories, not reliable. Our cars, sadly, aren't reliable. Our government often isn't reliable because it's made up of people who themselves aren't reliable. And yet God is perfectly reliable. He doesn't miss an appointment. He never forgets a promise. He never fails to keep a commitment. He has never spoken falsely. He has never failed to deliver. Every time... He speaks, you can bank on that word. You can trust it and depend upon it. Don't have a child, Abraham, that's okay. You can count on me. Don't have a way through the sea, Israel, that's okay. You can count on me. Joshua, not sure how you're going to fight those enemies. That's okay. It's not your fight. You can count on me. David, you're on the run. That's all right. You can count on me. Christian, 
overburdened with your sin. That's okay. Count on me. I can take care of that sin. You can't fight that temptation. You don't know how to get through the darkness of your own soul. You can't fight that battle. You don't know how to finish the race. In every one of those situations, God says, you can count on me. You can count on me. God's word on every page screams to us, I am reliable. I am trustworthy. Don't look to anything else. They won't meet you. They will fail you. I won't fail you, God says. I'm reliable. I'm the one who reigns powerfully over creation. I reign providentially, God says, over every single kingdom. I reign personally, proclamationally, if I can make up a word, through the church, right? Through my house, a house, God says, that is holy. Notice what befits God's house. It's a holy house. Friends, fashions change. In the 1970s, it was a shag carpet. Now it's shiplap. Recognize they all go out of style at some point. What's in style one year? It'll be out of style the next year. But holiness always becomes God's house. Holiness never falls out of style. Holiness is what makes God's house beautiful. Holiness is its defining characteristic. Friends, is it yours? We already read from 1 Corinthians, we are God's house. We are that temple. Is it a holy house? You know, this season, some of you are slammed, but some of you do have extra time. I wonder for those of you who actually have a little bit of extra time, are you pursuing holiness or just pursuing a new hobby? Without holiness, the Bible says, nobody will see the Lord. If you are not holy, you cannot see God. Heaven is only for perfectly holy people. Now, maybe you're listening at this point and you recognize, yeah, that's not me. I'm not a perfectly holy person. I, in fact, regularly do things I know I shouldn't do. I do things I'm actually quite ashamed of. And if you knew all the things I did, you also would be ashamed. Maybe you feel the weight of your own sin, of the way in which you've chosen your way over God's ways. And the message of the Bible isn't, we'll just work harder at holiness. That's not the message of the Bible. That would kind of be like taking a kitchen spoon to a ship that is sinking and thinking maybe if you just work harder, you can bail it out. It won't work. Rather, the Bible turns us to look to one who is perfectly holy, who has done what we cannot do. The Bible encourages us to look to one who, along with the Father, is there, creator, sustainer, the one who himself calmed the seas and walked upon the waters, the one who lived perfectly and died sacrificially as a substitute. This Jesus He has an unblemished record of holiness. And that's the record we need accredited to our account. And the wonderful news of the gospel is that it can be ours. The most beautiful thing about this sovereign God of verse 93, this sovereign God who reigns, the beautiful thing about it is that he's also a gracious God who redeems. He redeems his people. He sent his son, Jesus Christ. And he lived that perfect life. He died the death. We all deserve to die as the punishment for our own sins. So that as we see our need, as we look to Christ, 
repenting of our sins, trusting in him, the reward of death that we deserve, Jesus took that. The benefit of his everlasting eternal life, the holiness that he accomplished in his life, that's the free gift that Jesus gives to us as we place our faith in him. Friend, that's the holiness, Jesus' holiness. That's the holiness we need if we are going to be with this God in his house forevermore. Friends, God is in control. From creation to redemption to the consummation of all things, right? Forevermore, he reigns. He's in control. He's in the driver's seat. He reigns majestically, sovereignly, creation, kingdoms, the church for all eternity. We can either rebel against him or we can rest in this God who reigns. Friend, you are not in control, but you can trust the one who is. Let's pray to this one now. Amen. God, we pray and we, we delight. We delight in psalms like this, short psalms that speak entirely of you. They don't, we don't even come into the picture. We're just given a reflection and a beautiful display of your sovereign reign. And God, we pray that we would regularly be lifting our eyes to you, not to ourselves, but to you, and find all of our hope there. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.